Remember back in August of last year when the FBI searched Trump's Mar-a-Lago home looking for classified documents, documents they believed the former president had knowingly stashed away. Trump complained very loudly and very publicly about that raid. He also fundraised off of it. And really, he took every opportunity to point out what a victim he was of a deep state witch hunt. But his first real defense, his first real justification for why he kept all of those documents in the first place, that came in the form of a statement released exclusively to Fox News. Quote, President Trump had a standing order that documents removed from the Oval Office and taken into the residence were deemed to be declassified the moment he removed them. The idea that some paper-pushing bureaucrat with classification authority delegated by the president needs to approve the declassification is absurd. So that was Trump's defense. He had a standing order to declassify all these documents, whatever a standing declassification order is. Cool. Except nobody bought it. CNN interviewed 18 former official officials from Trump's own administration who called this explanation ludicrous and ridiculous and a complete fiction. John Kelly, who, as you recall, was Trump's chief of staff, he said, nothing approaching an order that foolish was ever given. And I can't imagine anyone that worked at the White House after me that would have simply shrugged their shoulders and allowed that order to go forward. Well, okay then. A few weeks later, Trump sat down for an interview with Sean Hannity, and he tried out a new defense. You had said on Truth Social a number of times you did de- declassify. I did declassify, yes. Okay. Is there a process? What was your process to declassify? It doesn't have to be a process, as right. I understand it. You know, there's different people say different right. things. But as I understand, there doesn't have to be. If you're the president of the United States, you can declassify just by saying um, it's declassified, even by thinking about it. There doesn't need to be a process. I can declassify at my whim. When I think it's declassified, when I say it's declassified, it is. Poof. National security experts everywhere found this ridiculous. But Trump has stuck with this defense. This is what he said at a town hall last week. I was there and I took what I took and it gets declassified. Let me just tell you, I have the absolute right to do whatever I want with them. I have the right. Tonight, we are learning that Trump knew those claims about mental or verbal declassification were bogus because he was told so in writing repeatedly while he was in office. According to CNN, the National Archives is preparing to give special counsel Jack Smith 16 records, which show Trump and his top advisors had knowledge of the correct declassification process while he was president according to multiple sources. NBC News has not independently verified that report. But think about this for a moment. This wasn't someone telling Trump after the Mar-a-Lago raid, Mr. President, you can't just declassify records by thinking about them as declassified. This was Trump being told the rules of the road while he was in office as he was allegedly mentally and verbally declassifying stuff or whatever it is he thought he was doing. Which then begs the question, what is in these 16 records exactly? CNN obtained a letter, which was sent yesterday from the National Archives to Trump, laying it all out. It reads, the 16 records in question all reflect communications involving close presidential advisors, some of them directed to you personally, concerning whether, why, and how you should declassify certain classified records. 
Apparently, during the Trump presidency, Trump's advisors were repeatedly reminding Trump of the official process for how to declassify things, which totally makes sense because Trump really liked sharing classified information when he was in office. Remember the time President Trump casually revealed highly classified information to the Russian foreign minister during a White House meeting? Or the time he tweeted out a highly classified image from a U.S. spy satellite? Or the time he held sensitive discussions about North Korea with the Japanese prime minister in front of a crowd of onlookers at Mar-a-Lago. Remember all that? In retrospect, it shouldn't be all that surprising that Trump was being repeatedly told how the official declassification process is supposed to work. And now those written warnings, those 16 records, could become a key part of special counsel Jack Smith's case against former President Trump. According to CNN, the 16 presidential records may provide critical evidence establishing the former president's awareness of the declassification process, a key part of the criminal investigation into Trump's mishandling of classified documents. The records may also provide insight into Trump's intent and whether he willfully disregarded what he knew to be clearly established protocols. So these records seem fairly important, which is why the DOJ apparently subpoenaed them earlier this year. And since then, Trump's legal team has done everything in its power to make sure these 16 documents don't see the light of day. Although for the record, Trump's legal team says this fight is really more of a strategic fight about constitutional and presidential protections rather than keeping evidence from the special counsel, which is okay. We now know that yesterday the archive sent the Trump team a letter that basically said, sorry, these 16 records are on their way to Jack Smith, which is a problematic development for Trump and his defense team. And it comes at a time when their legal problems are mounting. Yesterday, a top lawyer from Trump's Mar-a-Lago legal defense team announced that he would be stepping down, though he claims his departure has nothing to do with the underlying case. Hmm. Joining us now is national security lawyer Mark Zaid and Charlie Savage, Washington correspondent for The New York Times. Thank you both for joining me. Mark, let me start with you in terms of the the legal implications of all of this. What does Trump's awareness mean in terms of the eyes of the law as far as his what he knew about the declassification process and what he was saying and doing? Well, it's very significant, Alex, because it goes to his state of mind, which is what criminal cases are generally all about. And this has never been a strict mishandling of national defense information, which is what the Espionage Act actually uses by way of language. Because as I saw in the New York Post, every president since Reagan, and I dare say before that, have mishandled classified information. It is fairly routine. I see it all the time in my cases. What's at issue here is that, as you reported and CNN had reported, that Trump and his inner circle were told how to properly classify and declassify information. And I'll say even further, because I independently verified it, that they were instructed in the days and weeks before leaving the White House for the transition on how to pack up the documents so as not to take classified information. So this really goes further to the obstruction issues uh, and everything that we're starting to see, if true, by way of the leaks into the media, that Trump not only 
mishandled the information, but also sought to hide it from the U.S. government and obstructed the investigation by deliberately acting on that, as well as in giving instructions to others, possibly even his lawyers, as to where to move the documents around at Mar-a-Lago. Yeah, just to follow up on that, Mark, it's, so it, it's the obstruction charge, right? This is all obstruction or what it sounds like in full flower at many stages of this game. I shouldn't refer to it as game, but at many stages of this legal saga, Trump is acting as a roadblock effectively for what is to be done correctly by the letter of the law. Is that right? Yeah, there is no doubt in my mind that if once contacted by the National Archives when it was learned documents were missing at the White House, original classified records, that if they had, even after a period of weeks, maybe even months, said, oh, well, we thought we could take them for whatever reason. Here they are back. Maybe we'll fight with you about it, but here are the documents so you can protect them. If that had happened, we wouldn't be talking about anything uh, regarding this today. Instead, He obstructed for 18 months, and that required the search of his premises as allowed by a federal magistrate judge. I mean, that is all the difference in the world. This isn't a Pence case. This isn't a Biden case where they both mishandled classified records. Uh, That is normal. What is not normal is how Trump and his supporters and allies have handled this case. Charlie, I am struck by the fact that as of last week, President Trump was still mounting this defense. I can declassify things just by saying they're declassified and thinking they're declassified, knowing that his legal team had received this subpoena and was fighting it in court, effectively fighting to make sure that proof that Trump knew counter to what he was saying, public was going to was going to come out that Jack Smith is going to be handed these records. Does that surprise you? Well, I'd like to say something broader in this space that I think could be helpful because this is a pretty complicated topic. You know, your introduction has conflated the this sort of mystical. I I, I can declassify documents just by thinking it, and the prospect that a president could declassify documents just by saying it without following normal procedures. And I think there is an open question that a president, uh, there's a strong argument that a president can, by speaking it so that everyone hears it and it's communicated to the bureaucracy, declassify a document without going through normal procedures. There's, it's not been tested, but these procedures are set up by executive order. It is the president's constitutional authority. And so there's a lot of, you know, there's arguments over can a, can a president violate an executive order or a regulation? It's not been tested. But there's a coherent argument that a president could do that if he had spoken it. One of the big art fights here is he says he had this standing order, which does sound like a communicated directive, except no one heard it. It doesn't seem, you know, he's apparently just made it up as, as his first stab at a defense here. Uh, and that's, but if he had something like that and there were a piece of paper saying anything I take, even if it's crazy to have a system like that, you know, he would be on much stronger grounds. Whereas I, think it and it's declassified, but no one knows I've done that is incoherent in terms of how the system works, because it's all about the system by which the government protects information, keeps it closely held, carries it in special packages, puts it only on special computers, only talks about it in special rooms. And if no one knows it's been declassified, they're going to continue to treat it as closely held and it will have no consequence in the world. And this gets connected to something else that Mark was just saying, which is the law, putting aside the obstruction issue, which is central here, I agree, but the Espionage Act, which is the one about mishandling national defense information, 
does not speak to whether information was classified or not. It's because it was enacted in World War I. There was no classified information system yet. It doesn't have, so it doesn't matter by the words of the law whether something was technically still classified or not, whether it was marked top secret or it had been declassified. It just needs to be information about the national defense that could hurt the United States or aid a foreign adversary, and it was being closely held by the United States government. So even if Trump in his head had magically said these are declassified and we could have this sort of esoteric argument about whether that counts or not, it doesn't matter for the purpose of the Espionage Act because the government was still keeping it closely held, which is what is the necessary element to prove that criminal offense if no one knew about it because it was just in his head. So uh, yeah. this, I'm going to, I'm going to defer. Yeah. I, I, well, respectfully, I'm going to defer to what Don Kelly said and just on its face dismisses the notion of a standing order as patently absurd. It was never articulated. This was very much a confection of Trump's own invention. I will not get into the legal aspects of it, but there was no proof that he had declassified any of these and or had. I mean, I'm not I'm not a legal scholar, but it certainly seems like shaky ground. We don't need to litigate that right now, Charlie. I will go to you, Mark, in terms of what the implications are for, you know, the broader investigation as it stands into Mar-a-Lago and the case that Jack Smith is building. We know now there's this piece of it. We know that there are key players. They have broken attorney-client privilege on this case. Evan Corcoran has testified. There are a number of fronts where Jack Smith has had some significant wins. And I wonder, you know, what you make of Trump's sort of exposure at present. Sure. And I thought his participation in the town hall last week, and, and this has been said so many times, I'm sure on your broadcast as well, was great for him politically to his base. But his lawyers must have been just shaking their head with you know their hands over it because the things he said are going to come back to haunt him before Jack Smith. Uh, and I agree a lot with what, what Charlie w- was saying. And it's a legal issue about whether the mental aspect of the declassification could occur. But there is no process. I represented two of his secretaries of defense and his national security advisor. And there is no one other than Cash Patel, who was at one point with the HIPSI, the House Intelligence Committee, with Devin Nunes as the chair and also the chief of staff. Uh, at the Defense Department, he came forward and he said, oh, I knew of a standing order, and he was pulled before the grand jury. We haven't yet heard what, in fact, he said, uh, and he hasn't come back on air anywhere to say uh, any or provide any proof that this existed. But Trump has some very significant legal exposure, and it may be, unfortunately, politically, that the Biden-Pence timing, bad timing of having mishandled national defense information may cause some hesitation of the attorney general to pursue certain charges. But if everything is as we are hearing it to be with respect to obstruction, then there are looking to be some very significant uh, serious criminal charges coming. And I would imagine we're talking uh, weeks Uh, rather than months at this point. Wow, that is um, breaking news right there, Mark Sade. Mark, thank you. Charlie, thank you. Appreciate your time. We have lots more this evening, including the long-awaited Durham investigation. Maybe kind of a nothing burger, but House Republicans are calling for Democrats to be expelled from Congress over it. Democrats like Congressman Adam Schiff. He joins me coming up. And how did North Carolina Republicans manage to overturn the will of the people when it comes to abortion? We will talk to the state's Democratic Governor Roy Cooper 
Cooper about how it happened and whether Republicans may pay a price. Abortion is a deeply personal decision. It should not be a political debate. My womb and my uterus is not up for your political grab. That was North Carolina State Representative Trisha Cotham back in 2015, sharing the story of her abortion in front of the North Carolina State Legislature. And this is what happened in that same room yesterday. The House has overridden the governor's veto and the bill becomes law, notwithstanding the governor's objections. So be notified. The protesters there are chanting, shame, shame, shame. And they are chanting that because yesterday the North Carolina State House voted to override the veto of the Democratic governor, Roy Cooper, and force a 12-week abortion ban into law. And part of what makes the legislature's move so incredible here is that it came down to just one vote. It came down to a stunning about face by North Carolina State Representative Trisha Cotham. Last, last year, less than 12 months ago, Trisha Cotham ran as a Democrat. Here is her campaign website. It is, I kid you not, democrattrishacotham.org. Cotham won her race, again, just months ago as a Democrat. She beat her Republican opponent by a whopping 19% of the vote. This was not a close one. This was not a nail-biter. Her constituents wanted a Democrat representing them. And then last month, Trisha Cotham switched parties. She said she had been bullied by other Democrats and that they pushed her out. Now, we do not know enough to confirm or deny those claims, but we do know that in doing that, Trisha Cotham gave Republicans a supermajority a supermajority that would ensure Republicans were veto-proof. And so Trisha Cotham, who ran as a Democrat, became the deciding vote to override the governor's veto and put a 12-week abortion ban into law. As wild as Trisha Cotham's about face is, what is more concerning here is that Republicans were even close to a supermajority at all. Just this month, the group California Forward, Carolina Forward, polled on this specific 12-week ban. 54% of likely voters opposed a 12-week abortion ban. Only 40% supported it. So how did this all come down to Trisha Cotham's one vote? How did Republicans have enough votes to not just pass this thing, but to override Governor Roy Cooper's veto? How is the will of the people so far away from the work of the legislature? Joining us now is North Carolina Governor Roy Cooper. Governor, thank you so much for being here tonight. Um, I'll just get right to it. I, do you think Republicans, given the polling, given the numbers in terms of support for this abortion ban, do you think Republicans will pay a price for their actions yesterday? Yes, they will. Uh, it's pretty clear that partisan gerrymandering on steroids caused this today because the majority of North Carolinians do not want right wing politicians exam room with doctors and women. All we needed was one vote. People are angry. Women feel slapped in the face with this bill that came at them so fast. And every single Republican, even those who promised 
to protect women's reproductive freedom, those Republicans in swing districts, every one of them voted for this ban. And this shows us that Republicans are unified in their assault on women's reproductive freedom. Now, they tried to do this really fast, Alex. They, they passed this law in 42 hours. It took them 42 hours to turn the clock back 50 years. Allowed no amendments, no public input, and ran it through. I had 10 days to veto it. We went across the state. We held forums. We held a rally. People rose, rose up and said, we're not going to take this. But as soon as I vetoed it and handed it back to them the first legislative day, they overrode the veto. All we needed was one Republican to stand up, and they didn't do it. They tried to do it so fast that they didn't want to light a fire under Democrats and independents. But guess what? Too late. That fire is blazing, and you're going to see people all over North Carolina come to the polls and work to make sure that we break the supermajority in 2024 to make sure that we elect a Democratic governor because I'm term limited and I can only serve for a little over a year and a half more and to make sure we take this state for President Biden. And I believe that we can. It feels decidedly undemocratic, the actual bill itself, but then the way in which it was passed. And I want to talk a little bit about something you mentioned, the gerrymandering that has given the Republicans the supermajority. Now, we know for years North Carolina Republicans have been trying to gerrymander the state. Uh, I believe it was last month the North Carolina State Supreme Court effectively ruled in their favor. So they have the green light to do this to an even more extreme, it sounds like. Is that right? Well, last year, we had a Supreme Court that was Democratic, and uh, it, you really shouldn't have courts run in partisan races, and this legislature turned everything back partisan again. But the Democratic Supreme Court, well, it, it, was a, a, it was a close vote on the court, but what it did was rule that partisan gerrymandering was unconstitutional in North Carolina. And with fair maps, we sent seven Democrats and seven Republicans to Congress, showing that North Carolina is a truly 50-50 purple state. But Republicans won in 2022. We lost some ground in the state legislature. That's why it came down to one vote. And the Supreme Court reversed itself. And so they're now busily drawing maps. For the last four years, I've had a veto. We've had enough Democrats to sustain my veto. We've been able to hold off bad abortion bans and discrimination and attacks on voting rights. But now we are one vote short in both the House and the Senate. We're going to work to bring Republicans along on issues. We were able to get a bipartisan agreement to expand Medicaid in North Carolina uh, just a few months ago. We were able to get a bipartisan agreement on clean energy. Those are things we're going to continue to work on. But make no mistake, North Carolina Democrats are going to be ready in 2024. And even with gerrymandered districts, we're going to put at the top of the list, making sure that we have enough Democrats elected to make sure that we can sustain a veto with, we hope, to be a newly elected Democratic governor 
uh, to take office in 2025. That's critically important. We Democrats need to pay more attention to governor's races and to state legislative races. Your zip code shouldn't determine your constitutional right, but that's what the U.S. Supreme Court has done by overturning Roe v. Wade. The battles have moved to state capitals and state legislatures. I was chairman of the Democratic Governors Association last year, and we were able to end up with plus two Democratic governors. And in crucial states like Wisconsin and Michigan and Arizona and Pennsylvania, we were able to elect Democratic governors. And that's going to be important as we approach 2024, particularly in protecting democracy and protecting people from these terrible laws that you, that MAGA Republicans now clearly have control of their party. And we know where they're going with bad legislation. It's more important than ever for people to vote and to make sure they vote all up and down the ballot because every single election is important. Governor, why do you think Republicans do this on abortion in particular? You know, well, I think really gerrymandered districts have something to do with it, because I think you see Republicans in these very red districts only worry about primary opposition and they look at it politically. So they get as far to the right as they possibly can. Uh, you know, and, and I, this is why we need independent redistricting commissions in every state. Uh, it's very difficult to, to redistrict in a fair way, but you can do it. And in North Carolina, they have taken they've taken this to a technologically diabolical extreme. They can go house by house. Uh, we, we have seen them draw congressional districts that have ended up 10 to 4. And they said the only reason it was 10 to 4 because they couldn't figure out a way to make it 11 to 3. Yeah. That's the extreme that they go to. And I think that affects uh, the kind of legislation that they consider. And all of them are following Donald Trump, too. So clearly you have a party that has lost its way or either they found their way. And we know that Democrats and independents across North Carolina and across this country have to come out and be ready in 2024 to fight for our democracy, to fight for women's reproductive freedom, to fight for public education, health care, all of these things that we know are so critical. Well, we know that abortion is one of those issues that gets Democrats and independents out. So we shall see, Governor Cooper. Thank you so much for your time tonight. Thanks a lot, Alex. When we come back, the Durham report. Remember that? It was supposed to be a bombshell, but it fizzled. And yet Republicans still want somebody to face punishment. And it looks like they have picked Democratic Congressman Adam Schiff. That's coming up. Plus, we will take a look at the ties between Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas, his billionaire benefactor, Harlan Crow, and a judge who will be deciding a major case on abortion. That is next. Take a look at this painting. It has become iconic on the level of dogs playing poker. Everybody has a copy. It's a depiction of billionaire Republican megadonor Harlan Crow and his close relationship with Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas, as well as a few other friends. The same Clarence Thomas who accepted a lot of nice things from Harlan Crow, which has now piqued the interest of Congress. There are the thousands of dollars in luxury travel, the purchase of three Thomas-owned properties in the state of Georgia, the private school tuition for one of Thomas's very close relatives— ProPublica has unveiled a whole world of gifts Mr. Crow has given to his Supreme Court justice friend, Clarice Thomas. But there is another layer here. There is another interesting visual. This is a photo of Justice Thomas swearing in a judge on the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals, a judge named Jim Ho, James Ho. 
He is a Trump appointee who also clerked for Clarence Thomas. And that room they are all standing in? It is a private library in the home of Harlan Crow. And according to more reporting from ProPublica, flight records suggest that Harlan Crow perhaps even flew Justice Clarence Thomas in for this swearing in on Harlan Crow's private jet. But who is the judge here who's getting sworn in? He's not a Supreme Court justice. Judge Ho is one of the three circuit court judges who will decide whether or not Mifa Pristone will remain accessible in this country at least until the Supreme Court weighs in. And if you would like an understanding of which way Judge Ho may be leaning on this matter, take a listen to the question he asked during a hearing today as the defendants tried to explain why the FDA expedited its approval of Mifepristone. Is it a serious illness? So in the preamble to the subpart H regulation... Oh, right Mother's Day. Were we celebrating illness? No, Your Honor. Judge Ho has called abortion a moral tragedy. He has downplayed Judge Andrew Kaczmarek's actions before the Senate, and he has defended Justice Thomas's acceptance of gifts from Harlan Crow, the guy who hosted Judge Ho swearing in. Today, a Senate Judiciary Subcommittee held a hearing about Justice Thomas's acceptance of all these nice things, and so we have a lot to talk about. Joining us now is Dahlia Lithwick, senior editor for Slate and host of the Amicus podcast. Dahlia, thank you for being here tonight. Good to be with you. Um, what happened in the Senate Judiciary Subcommittee hearing today? It, it was fairly amazing because you had a judge, a, a, a now senior judge, who was a Reagan appointee, who worked, you know, for all sorts of conservative causes, essentially come forward and say, I was upset and stressed out about the failure to disclose and the weirdness of Clarence Thomas's uh, both gifting situation and uh, disclosures in 2012. A that long I, time ago. I ran this up the flagpole and got kind of nowhere with the judicial conference, which is the governing body of the judiciary. And he essentially said, they said to him, no, 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 nothing to see here. And so he, after much anguish, Alex, comes forward and says, I don't love doing this. This doesn't feel right to me. But the reason we have both statutes that govern what judges disclose and a judicial conference, which sets the rules, is so we don't get in situations mm -hmm. where all this stuff comes out, the judiciary looks terrible, and then they say nothing was done. I tried to do something. Yeah. Well, it feels like by virtue of having this person, this senior judge, explain his moral anguish over Clarence's Thomas's situation, the fact that this is happening at a subcommittee of the Senate Judiciary Committee and the fact that I believe the Senate Finance Committee, uh, Ron Wyden, sent Harlan Crow a letter today asking for detailed lists and costs of the flights and the yacht trips and the three Georgia properties that Crow bought for uh, from uh, Clarence Thomas. It feels like there might actually be some oversight and accountability here? Or am I being over overly optimistic about what could happen? There was this great accidental self-own where Harlan Crow seems to be saying that there's a separation powers of powers reason, that he doesn't have to disclose what he knows. And so in a weird sense, what he's saying is that we all know the thing that is true, which is there is a fourth branch of government, and it's called 
Harlan Crow. Yeah. And that he somehow has some separation of powers interest in not disclosing what he has done because what he's the boss of the other three branches. It's super crazy. But thank you, Mr. Crow, for telling us. Well, and I was telling you, I think Harlan Crow, his name keeps popping up. He's like the Kevin Bacon of maybe judicial malfeasance or, or at least corruptions or ethical questions. I mean, the idea that we showed that picture, maybe we can pull it up again, of uh, Judge Jim Ho getting sworn in by Clarence Thomas at Harlan Crow's private library, right? This man is involved in a lot of the careers of these very conservative justices. And let us talk about Jim Ho, who made very clear that he is not a fan of mifepristone or um, some parts of uh, bodily autonomy when it comes to pregnancy. What do you expect from the Fifth Circuit and him on this issue in particular? I mean, I think in some sense we saw the dry run when they initially, uh, the, the Fifth Circuit initially ruled on Judge Kaczmarek's order and they said, oh, we're going to set the clock back to 2016 and we're just going to, you know, pretend that what Judge Kaczmarek did was reasonable. And in some sense they got spanked by the U.S. Supreme Court yeah. that didn't let that stay go into effect. So what we saw today, uh, my colleague Mark Stern at Slate put it really well, was them just acting out. They were just kind of grumpy that the court had put them in the naughty boy chair and didn't let them do the thing they wanted to do, which would have you know, catastrophically yeah. limited access to mifepristone. And what we saw was so much kind of snark. I mean, that snark you, you know, led with, which is just really we're going to talk again about things that are just not true about the FDA not being in good faith. Maybe the FDA isn't going to follow instructions. Maybe, you know, we should talk about how we're starving babies in the womb, like the degree of sort of creepy, bad Fox News discourse, yeah. as opposed to serious judicial fact-finding, yeah. was really dispiriting from a federal judicial panel. Well, and I got to say, I mean, I, to, at, at, at the risk of sounding like Pollyanna or, or, or Rip Van Winkle, I've just woken up from 100 years of slumber. I am still shocked that there is this cabal of arch conservatives who it increasingly seems feel like they are above the sort of standards of jurisprudence and can sort of make these calls on their own. And they're all friends and they all have paintings or photographs with wealthy benefactors and feel like they may need to make no excuses about the network. I mean, from Judge Kaczmarek, you can get to Jim Ho, who swore Kaczmarek in. From Jim Ho, you can get to Clarence Thomas, who swore Jim Ho in. And from all of them, you get back to Harlan Crow. I mean, for the for the layman, this feels like the scales have fallen from our eyes. It's funny because I was thinking about your dogs playing poker analogy, and it would be like dogs playing poker if one of the dogs owned all the other dogs, right? <laughs> like, that's why it's really not really a poker game. It's something much, much more, I think, nefarious. And I think it's also worth saying that Judge Ho was out on the hustings giving this barnstorming, you know, disclaimer that everything that Clarence Thomas did was noble yes. and that Judge Kaczmarek, who you may recall, you know, submitted a Law Review article and then took his name off and didn't disclose that as part of his hearings. Judge Ho defended that, that too. So these guys are so deep in each other's stuff that that's become their defense. And that part of it is just like, again, stop saying the quiet parts out loud because it doesn't make the judiciary look good. Yes. Stop being part of each other's stuff and stop wanting to be part of our stuff, too. Just 
saying as a woman. Dahlia Lithwick, it is always a pleasure to see you. I'm sorry we have to talk about such grim topics. Thank you for your time and wisdom as always. Still to come this evening, we are going to hear from Congressman Adam Schiff about why a Republican colleague is calling for him to be expelled from the House of Representatives. Stay with us. We just had a report come out from Durham. What does that say about Adam Schiff? He lied to the American public. Should he be expelled from Congress as well? That was House Speaker Kevin McCarthy yesterday arguing that Congressman Adam Schiff should be expelled from Congress for leading the probe into President Trump's campaign and its relationship with Russia. Now, both the Mueller report and the bipartisan Senate Intelligence Committee concluded that Russia did interfere in the 2016 election with the sole purpose of helping Donald Trump beat Hillary Clinton and that the Trump campaign welcomed that very interference. Speaker McCarthy made those comments after the release of the Durham report, which was a report commissioned by former Attorney General Bill Barr to basically investigate the investigators. That report contained no major revelations, and it failed to expose a politically motivated deep state conspiracy. But now, Republicans appear to be looking for ways to hold Democrats accountable for the things that special counsel Durham could not find himself, starting with Congressman Adam Schiff. Tonight, far-right Republican Congresswoman Anna Paulina Luna has introduced a resolution to expel Adam Schiff from Congress. This comes after Speaker McCarthy removed Congressman Schiff from the Intelligence Committee earlier this year. Now, Congressman Schiff has a lot to say about all this, and he's going to be joining me live right after this break. So stay tuned. A few hours ago, Republican Congresswoman Anna Paulina Luna filed a resolution calling for the expulsion of Democratic Congressman Adam Schiff from Congress over so-called revelations from special counsel John Durham's report. Congressman Luna alleges that Adam Schiff lied to the American people. He used his position on House intelligence to push a lie that cost American taxpayers millions of dollars and abused the trust placed in him as chairman. The Durham report makes clear that the Russian collusion was a lie from day one, and Schiff knowingly perpetuated that lie for political gain. Joining us now is Congressman Adam Schiff of California, member of the Judiciary Committee. Congressman Schiff, thanks so much for being here. I'll just get right to it. I mean, what is your response to this move to try and expel you from the House of Representatives? Well, as you said, uh, the Durham investigation, and again, this was an investigation Donald Trump demanded, an investigation of the investigators. Bill Barr was only happy enough to comply by the appointment of Durham. Durham spends four years trying to prove this deep state conspiracy theory that uh, Trump kept, uh, you know, telling his base was going to be proven. And People like uh, Brennan and Pelosi and Schiff and others were going to be prosecuted. The whole thing, of course, was a big bust. Four years, hundreds of interviews, and nothing to show but two failed cases in which not the defendants who were acquitted, but but Durham, the prosecutor, I think, was criticized by the judge. Um, And so their response to this big disappointment for Trump and for the MAGA crowd, let's go after Adam Schiff, let's go after the person they most view as standing up for the rule of law, as standing up against uh, Trump and MAGA world, uh, leading the first impeachment, participating in the January 6th committee. That's what this is about. And Alex, I'm convinced when this uh, dark chapter of our history is written, uh, it will reflect that those Republican members who lack the courage to stand up to the most unethical president in U.S. history, Donald Trump, consoled themselves by attacking those who did. Uh, And that's what this is really about. 
Are you surprised that Speaker McCarthy is is invoking your name? I mean, he is not technically part of the MAGA wing of the party, although he certainly does help them find a home uh, in the Republican conference. But he is the Speaker of the House and is supposed to be above some of this petty political mudslinging. Did his comments surprise you? You know, nothing he does really surprised me. This is the same guy that gave surveillance video to Tucker Carlson. Uh, He will do whatever Trump wants him to do. And I'm sure Trump glories uh, in McCarthy and House Republicans going after me. Uh, This is all about satisfying his boss in Mar-a-Lago and satisfying the Fox watching crowd uh, that loves Donald Trump. Uh, So it doesn't surprise me. Uh, McCarthy's also made it clear he wants to do everything he can to stop me from uh, being elected to the Senate, uh, where he knows I would be even more effective in pushing back against these uh, efforts to tear down at the rule of law. So this is, I think, part of what is uh, at work here. Do you think that there's um, I'm not going to ask if you think it's a coincidence because it's clearly not. But this is the day that there was a move to expel uh, George Santos, the serial fabulist uh, from Congress that failed. But do you think that this is a naked play to basically seek an eye for an eye, if you will, you for if George Santos is going to get kicked out, then so is Adam Schiff? I think that uh, a lot of what's going on is what we've seen many times in the past, which is when Democrats do something for the right reason, they use the precedent to do something for the wrong reason uh, and uh, and attempt to draw some kind of a false equivalence about it. Uh, But, you know, the confluence of efforts to expel this serial fabricator, George Santos, this person who's just been indicted, who's uh, admitted guilt to a foreign uh, crime uh, to distract attention from that. And in the wake of the added disappointment of the Durham report. Let's go after Adam Schiff. Let's, you know, please the MAGA crowd uh, and send a message to anyone else that stands up to Donald Trump and the extreme MAGA world. We will go after you the way we're going after Adam Schiff. You know, I think, um, you know, Congressman Schiff, I think a lot of people are very deeply appreciative of what you've done in Congress and that the fact that you are not being cowed by these transparent attempts to oust you for reasons that have nothing to do with anything other than jealousy that you're effective at your job. Congressman Adam Schiff, thanks for your time tonight. Good luck in this fight. That is the show for this evening. We will see you again tomorrow. 